Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. So we are starting episode 40, which I guess is a big milestone for developers eating the world. And as has become the trend of the recent episodes, I've been uh, trolling people at other events. And so I discovered Anna, who was the MC host of a recent event. Um, so welcome. Thanks for joining me. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself? So um, my name is Anna. I'm leading right now a team of uh, infrastructure and security at a company named Porter. Uh, we are doing uh, AI-based fraud prevention for e-commerce. Before Porter, I worked for a company called Wix. Um, uh-huh. It's a pretty well-known website builder platform. What bridged the gap for you between security and DevSecOps? Do you like the term DevSecOps, first of all? What do you, what do you call it? Uh, I'm really bad with terms. I really like a term uh, my friend used for describing my work. He called it uh, DevOps. Except of that, I think my job, my profession right now gets so much uh, hype in terms of uh, different names. So I already don't know how to call it DevOps, DevSecOps, CloudOps, uh, InfoSecOps, whatever, SRE, production engineering, everything. I think it's worth like pointing that out because the practitioners, the ones who know, the ones who know and the ones who do, don't value the label put on their role as much as the vendors. I mean, that's a huge lesson. And if you're a vendor listening, then, you know, take notes because I think that that is absolutely critical. You just, you just, you know what your function is, you know what your role is you don't really care what the industry label for that is. Even you're not using it for differentiate uh, your people, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So everyone knows it can call it anyway, but you still will be working on infrastructure. <laughs> uh, regarding your question about bridging a gap, for me, security started uh, when I started doing QA. And basically, a big part of QA was the security testing. And that was a way to learn about security. So basically, I started from breaking things to learn how things work. <laughs> so uh, when you say security testing, are you talking about like artifactory, x-ray? When I started, there was not much of a tooling, some very basic scanners. And uh, most of the job was done manually. So you were just uh, oh. copy-pasting XSS scripts and uh, rechecking it, some CSRF oh, wow. attacks. Uh, uh, yes, but I was working for a bank and it was super critical to check right. security part of uh, online banking applications. That's cool. So you really had an aptitude and interest in the security aspects of um, building the applications. And I've noticed that QA, unfortunately, QA, QE, they don't tend to be the best champions of their own work. but they are very well suited to have that kind of big picture perspective of DevOps. Uh, I think it's a 
it's a big conversation because uh, I think at some point industry started putting QA a bit aside uh, by telling that uh, developers can do their tests and stuff. I completely disagree with that approach because I think that the mindset you have as QA, this a bit paranoid mindset when you're looking for bad things to happen. And that's something you're not getting as a developer. More than that, when you're developing some tools, you never think about it in a QA things. You know that you handle some of the edge cases, so probably you will test edge cases and it's fine, and you think the tool works. But no, if you will give it to a proper QA with a really good specialization in QA, <laughs> be sure it will be broken in so many ways you couldn't imagine. I, I mean, obviously, as you know, the shift left movement is is a big thing right now. The The holistic perspective that QA has is very unique. But now you've raised another one is on the job rec, you need to put slightly paranoid is <laughs> the best way to hire hire candidates where are you slightly paranoid yes okay then, then move on. now but how does that translate to production then like do you feel like developers should be on call for incidents or what accountability should developers have to the security in production i'm that type of person who thinks that the whole thing has to be on call uh, product managers, QA, UX designers, developers, everyone, because there are different types of bugs. And if you're taking part of building it, take part in maintaining it. <laughs> and actually, I had an experience uh, joining uh, incidents as a QA and also as a developer and as a production engineer. And I think that uh, there is a big impact in, in every area. Everyone can help and everyone can can bring some impact there. Regarding specifically developers being on call, I think it depends on what your company is doing and what your team specifically is doing. And like, I don't like blindly putting people on call just because it's cool to have on call for everything. Actually, I even have a blog article about on-call and how to choose if you need on-call for your company and your team or not and so on. But in a few words, I think that it really should depend on, on your SLAs. Yeah, I think what you're describing is basically that you need a strategy. <laughs> that you can't just <laughs> like you can't just willy-nilly be on call. You you have to you have to have a plan for how you're going to execute on it. Yeah, it's not just about on-call. In general, I think I started a blog series about incident management because I saw that for most of the people and most of the companies, at least from my experience, people start thinking about incident management at the point incident happens. And some very good right. companies, very experienced companies, they start thinking about incident management when they are building uh, tools and when they're thinking about DR and some high availability and so on. But I think that you should start thinking about incident management from the moment you are hiring people. <laughs> because if you are hiring development team or some R&D center, whatever they will be doing, it will be breaking <laughs> You will have incidents for sure. You will be needing to manage incidents for sure. So you should be starting your incident management discussions or thinking about it from, from the moment of hiring. Because the part during the incident itself, it's just the top of an iceberg. So yeah, unfortunately, all of us want it to just be 100% tech all the time. 
you know, development is a lot more than that. I mean, developers spend so much time just working with the pipeline and not building functionality. So they also need to spend time on the strategy element. But now I'm curious, because obviously you probably haven't hired everybody that's come into the organization and, and maybe don't have say on the development side. How are you educating or re-educating the team that you have on incident management? It really depends on the team and on some background you have in the company, on engineering culture you have and so on. I think what's the most common myth which I'm trying to break first time I'm talking about incident management is that you need really technical people to take care of production. I think that's just not true. And a lot of incidents happen in my life where you could fix it, just at least mitigate it, not actually fix, but users are, and your business parameters are mostly caring about mitigation aspect because that's the time when users feel that you have an incident. So I think there are some part of incidents uh, you could mitigate with just having uh, soft skills, talking to people, having some wide view over production, knowing how to shift things in the correct way and so on. Uh, and you will be able to fix it, to mitigate it, um, even without having some deep knowledge in how code structure looks, what, which language it's written and so on. And so on. Yeah, and it's a refreshing perspective. Also, it's refreshing from the population of people who want to get into tech and DevOps, because I think classically, you know, pre-DevOps maybe or pre-code camps, you couldn't enter the field unless you had a degree in computer science. It wasn't even an option. And I, I think that's changing a little bit and hopefully changing for people who have the aptitude. And one thing that's been a big theme in, in these episodes is being the gr just grit like pure just grit and interest in the technology and they can learn it and they don't have to have all the answers to begin with. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. Well, how much time do you spend on post-incident work, like um, post-incident reviews and communicating with developers to get the long-term beyond the mitigation to resolution? So I have a few answers for you at the same time. <laughs> The part of the work you mentioned, like post-mortems and work on actually fixing an issue and work on with developers uh, to make sure that issue won't happen uh, uh, next time, it's one part of a post-incident job. And uh, it really depends on incident, but it's, it's really hard to say, but I don't think that it takes more than 10% of my time, for example. But also there is another big part of the work on which I'm trying to spend way more time. It's analytics. I'm really trying to, first of all, report every incident happened and then see trend how many incidents we have, where they're coming from, who is fixing them, who is mitigating them, how much time it takes, and so on and so on. Because basically, as I said, I don't think there is an option when you don't have incidents at all at least while running uh, some production <laughs> and while changing a code and doing some changes into production. Uh, but what we really can change for business not to suffer is uh, to, first of all, uh, minimize the amount of incidents, but also to minimize time we're spending on mitigating incidents. So it can be kind of fine to have an incident if users are not noticing that we're having incidents and if business is not wasting any money on it. And this part of the work is way bigger, but I think it's way more important 
not just to not have the same incident happening twice, but also just to change the trend coming. And you're really describing kind of a framework. I don't like the term soft skills. I just don't like it. It's not that it's not accurate. I just don't like it. Uh, but that that there are those soft skills to not only looking at the firefight, which is right now, but but long term. And I think that that also is just a big apt aspect of DevOps because security generally has had the mindset of create barriers so that whatever goes in production is, you know, is hermetically sealed and you know exactly what it is and, and, and also don't change things. With a framework, you have to have a framework to support the changes, which is increased application velocity. What do you think the relationship between application velocity, so releasing more to incidents and incident management is these days? So I don't think the correlation is direct, if that's what you're asking. I don't think that releasing more causing more incidents. I actually think that it's pretty parallel things because it more depends on how you organize your incident management uh how you organize your development pipeline because that's also important rather than how often do we release you can be releasing every minute but if you're releasing any new feature is locked behind some a b test or something and any your release is not actually uh, putting news in face of customers but just changing some small pieces and you track record of everything what's happening and you can roll back safely and very fast in a in just few seconds without anyone noticing it it's fine you can release every second you can release every minute whatever you need if you are releasing once per year for example and it's huge bulk of changes and they're not covered anyhow and you don't have any normal ability to roll back and so on then uh, you will have smaller velocity, but it won't be causing you less incidents. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's the that's I'm going to say million dollar question, but I mean that's the biggest argument to increased application velocity is faster velocity means more bugs, more errors, more vulnerabilities. And you answered it as I was hoping you were going to answer it. I mean, it, I, <laughs> I, I'm always open for arguments too, but uh, which is that. The, they, they don't necessarily have to correlate. If if you have a bad system for releasing code and tracking it, then yeah, it's going to be worse. <laughs> and It also uh, depends on, on your monitoring yeah, because I really want to focus on this part um, because sometimes, first of all, if you don't have any monitoring, you don't have incidents. You just don't know about them and it's fine. <laughs> and sometimes you start tracking things and you start knowing about incidents more. It can look like you have more incidents, but it's just not true. You just have better visibility. That's exactly. that's a really good point. You didn't know before, and now you do. So, yeah, I think that velocity is not changing much. Also, more than that, I think that if you're not releasing too often, you will have more vulnerabilities because you're not upgrading your dependencies. And it's also a big part of uh, of security paranoia world. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's great. I mean, you basically made the, the case for, for DevSecOps in high levels. <laughs> so good. I mean, that's the point, right? We're just trying to sell people on this stuff. How do you maintain 
and I think you've sort of answered this from a process perspective, but how do you maintain credibility and relationship with the developers who often view the security stuff and the quality stuff as the bane of their existence? It's a very good question. I don't have some uh, nice... <laughs> we need a magic bullet. Everybody wants a magic bullet. <laughs> there is no magic bullet. The magic bullet is communication. That's, that's, again, I'm talking about soft skills with a term you don't like. <laughs> I mean, in the end of the day, we're all coming to work for some united goal. And I mean... I do care about security and reliability because it's part of my work, but if the company won't be bringing any money, then I wouldn't be caring about my work because it won't be my work. So there should be some development process and I can't be stopping it because it will be stopping my work too. So what I can do is to to make sure whatever they are doing is secure and reliable. They want it too because... I mean, they are also being on call from from time to time. Uh, They also want to see someone using their product, actually, and not just uh, develop into table. I don't know. I think it's just communication what matters. Uh, I don't like telling that you should be doing that because uh, I'm taking care of security and I told you so. (laughs) I like explaining what, uh, why, what will happen and so on. And uh, sometimes, yeah, it's a bit uh, paranoid and sometimes people are trolling me for being too paranoid, but uh, okay, that's part of life. (laughs) So if you want to advance your career in this area, because we've talked a lot about what sounds like mindsets and soft skills and all of that, you can't get that in a resume. First of all, I think you can. <laughs> I mean, I think every resume template has this part for soft skills where everyone writes like some hobbies or a Yeah, it's usually fluffy and canned and reviewed by mom and dad. And <laughs> If you're asking how to review soft skills during an interview, I have some tips and tricks there. Um, because I think that, first of all, usually at least in the processes I've been through, there is an HR interview in the end, and you can always ask HR person to check specifically what you need because HR is is your friend. (laughs) And I mean, you're working together towards the same goal. So I think it will be easier for HR to work if you specify what you want them to check for the specific candidate for the specific position. But except of that, I really like checking soft skills during a technical interview. And I usually ask candidates to uh, to do some online uh, incident management, online debugging. For example, I'm telling that um, we have some small production, uh, super oversimplified, like just few servers and some load balancer and some... I don't know, database and uh, DNS server. And then I start telling that uh, you see alerts for this and that and that. And uh, let's try to get ideas, understand what's going on, and just tell me your thoughts. And when the candidate starts talking about it, like if he says that uh, he or she opened the log file, for example, I'm telling what uh, what the candidate sees in that log file. And uh, and so on, and we communicate, and I can see how person communicate, how person reacts when his or her ideas are not right, because that's 
a very big part of incident management to be able to throw so many ideas knowing that 99% of them will be wrong and it's fine. <laughs> it's completely okay and it's not telling anything about you personally. I can see if person thinks about notification, about reporting to management that I did this, I did that, that at this point it's important to say that uh, um, I'm doing something, so please all the rest of the team don't do anything because it can be uh, causing more problems. Uh, I'm checking if person thinks about leaving some um, data for post-mortem for investigations later like for example if you are restarting servers uh, usually you want to leave one server not restarted and still not working but locked out of the production so then on that server on that environment you can investigate what actually happened and debug what what was the situation also sometimes you can just start throwing more things at uh, at the candidate and see how uh, if a candidate noticed details, because I think that's also super important during uh, incident management, because even the smallest thing can be actually the cause for your incident. Well, details are the exact reason I failed at being a developer. So I'm glad I'm interviewing you and you're not interviewing me because I don't think I would get very far. Your strategy is great because you're actually asking a technical question, but expecting to get elements that are not necessarily technical yeah i also think i have a suggestion for people who probably want to get into incident management or into devops world i think what really is interesting and can be can be really good background for building any incident management strategy is to check how police officers firefighters and doctors are working in in the field of incident because their procedures, it's amazing. First of all, it's completely applicable to DevOps and to production. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's well-defined. It's super careful. It's taking into account every single thing you couldn't thought about because they are working with people and the price of their mistake is usually much more than the price of our mistakes. But uh, but the framework itself, it works amazingly. And you can see there what you need to be doing, what you need to be thinking. If you should be focusing on your emotions, which no, never, <laughs> as a spoiler. But uh, uh, still, and when you're not applying it to some technical details, you don't get into technical parts. So you're just being on the level of framework. And I don't know, for me personally, it, it helps a lot. Yeah, that analogy, it's an analogy I use a lot. Mobilization of people and addressing issues is even though the window can be really small, there's a lot that happens and goes on in there. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, also just some basic concepts of uh, triage and prioritizing what you're fixing first. And uh, yeah, and all the soft skills part of not taking things personally, of not taking some comments and emotions of other people personally and all that part. I think it's important because during an incident, you can actually, any single smallest detail cost money <laughs> and if the bigger company is the more money it costs right so usually you don't want to be wasting company's money on your emotions or your colleague emotions or something that's great advice all right so now is the time where i throw i'm going to give you three terms industry terms 
and you give me impressions, you know, whatever, whatever you think about him. There's no, no right or wrong. Uh, it's always fun. It goes back to what we were talking about before, how vendors kind of flood the industry with industry terminology and the reality of how much practitioners do or do not care about that, I think is super fascinating. So the first one, chaos engineering. Curious your perspective of chaos engineering as it relates to security. <laughs> uh, it's a very tricky question because look, I'm coming from QA uh, QA background, and uh, I think chaos engineering is the kind. Of, I will be exaggerating right now just to make it a bit more funny, but it looks like uh, oh, we don't need QA. Wait, wait. It looks like we do need QA, but let's call it a chaos engineering. <laughs> I think it's a nice try, <laughs> uh, and I think it's much better than just making developers write tests approach. But uh, still, it kind of for me looks like getting back to basics. <laughs> Unfortunately, the the term chaos doesn't do it much justice because I actually feel like um, your role could own chaos engineering. Yeah, I think. If there is any role right now in the industry who should be owning it, I think it's uh, infrastructure system people. Also because of some wide perspective on the the production and also because uh, system engineers are usually people who do some kind of chaos engineering in their head while imagining any, like while designing any system. Because you always think that I don't know, at least for me, when I start design of any new architecture, I draw it and then I know that in every single point I drew it can fail. So what do I do? And uh, I think chaos engineering can bring some automation to it, uh, make it faster and funnier. But of course, you should be able to do rollback. You should be tracking things. You should have monitoring, which will be showing what your chaos chaos machine is doing and uh, what's happening to your production so i think it should be built on top of some framework on top of uh, some incident management strategy you have but of course it's it's always better to have it rather than not have it i really like that that what you said about chaos being chaos engineering being a part of system design itself it's just an aspect of how you decide to build systems. It's not something that you do after the system's built. I think chaos engineering is more designed for, for changes, not for three steps before building the infrastructure, because usually all the design and thinking is done before you start building. And then usually while you start building, there are some new requirements coming and coming and coming. And in the end, you usually get some very different systems from what you imagined in the beginning. So chaos engineering can help during the process of uh, developing to check what's going on and so on, because you probably won't be rethinking design every single feature you're adding. Absolutely. Okay. Next term. Uh, So we already talked about it, but I'm going to do it again because I liked your your opinions on it. Um, Shift left security. I think it's natural. (laughs) We were going there for a long time. It's started firstly with uh, giving developers responsibility to test their things then giving developers responsibility to maintain their things off hours to, to make developers do on-call. And it's natural, like also, by the way, with uh, 
all the infra going into cloud, I also saw a lot of companies where developers doing parts of, of infrastructure work. So making developers do parts of security, I think it's natural and it's nice. And why not? I, I don't think that it can replace security engineers at all, because I still think it's a bit different profession and a bit different uh, set of mind. Um, but offloading some of responsibilities, of course. <laughs> well, that's refreshing to hear from the, a security professional's perspective. Okay, last one, AI ops. <laughs> <laughs> you were holding that for me. <laughs> uh, I think it's a big hype, but I think behind that hype, there is actually a big part of a working technology. Um, I don't want to be judging everything together or uh, having some one specific opinion about everything, about every AI app. But uh, in general, I saw when it works and it works incredibly and blows your mind because you couldn't imagine that before. And the way you were thinking about uh, engineering and some basic applications just not applicable uh, there, but um, I also saw when people are calling uh, AI up something actually not being that much of AI. This is great. Thanks for, for sharing your time in evening in Tel Aviv, all the way from Tel Aviv. Uh, and I think your perspectives on you know career growth and also the framework side of um, Incident management, incident response is tremendous. You have a lot of great information to share. How else would people learn about all of this stuff? First of all, you can follow me on LinkedIn and uh, you can talk to me anytime you need or want. Uh, I will be happy to help and share my opinion and uh, give some advice if you need or uh, anything. And uh, yeah, uh, my series about incident management in Medium is ongoing. So I continue adding there more new and new posts. As I said, I'm going now into part of a bit more technical perspective of incidents, not just uh, organizational part. Uh, so yeah, you can follow me on Medium and uh, see all the updates there too. Yeah. I caution you on inviting people to reach out to you on LinkedIn. You're going to have to have a filter. You should make them ask to like answer five questions before you'll accept their, <laughs> their, their requests. Of course, I'm inviting only people who have uh, work-related questions on the war actually. In, in, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, in another, that's another thing. Well, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to chatting again with you soon. And thank you for inviting me.